0: Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. It's already December. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael here. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, Brain Teasers for Broadway Geniuses, is now available wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi, Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You could see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello, hello. I was admiring some of your photography as we were talking just before we started recording. You were at a uh, Rockefeller Center last night.
1: Yes, and also Bryant Park. Uh, I and live to tell the tale. <laughs> <laughs> I went with my uh, niece and her husband and their two little babies, my grandniece and nephew, twins. Oh, um, nice. And Bryant Park, it's really amazing for those of us who remember Bryant Park when it was Needle Park, and it was yeah. the worst place in the world. Uh, nobody went in uh, other than you know people you wouldn't want to run into. Uh, it was the Needle and, Lander. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know it's uh some years ago uh it's been it's been turned into a just a beautiful place for the public and it was really really great to be with uh i mean it you know it was tremendously crowded but it, it was still a lot of fun
0: we they they have, have a they, little they christmas
1: have, village yeah they have a christmas village they have an ice skating rink which i'm told uh, uh someone told me it's free Uh, really i I didn't um research that but that's what someone said there's a carousel uh my Mm -hmm. little uh grandniece and nephew went on the carousel they were thrilled and um oh and by the way um today uh there's some kind of open house uh well not exactly open house uh apparently uh for some years now they have taken the main branch of the public library uh you know right there at fifth avenue and 42nd street and made some kind of like a winter uh wonderland thing out of it um and it's it is free uh to the public but you have to have a a ticket to get in uh so i I have no idea if tickets would still be available uh you might want to check that out and i think it's only i'm not sure i think it's can't only be one day can it that wouldn't make any sense uh i'm sorry i don't have more information on it but uh i was planning to go to that later today so we'll see how that is and i'll report on it next week
0: yeah just a block or so east of times square we can between fifth and sixth avenues on 42nd is uh brian park in the new york public library and uh the one the fifth avenue branch right there uh that michael's talking about so yeah and the Brian Park Christmas Village is a great little place to get unique mm. uh, holiday holiday presents. So check that out. And of course, we always talk about Brian Park in the spring and the summer, having Broadway performances and the films at Brian Park and things like that. Go see, go see the Wizard of Oz there and sound of mm. music and <laughs> sing along, uh-huh. things like that. It's always a lot of fun. But it is a little too cold to do that stuff right now. So Peter <laughs> jumped on the private Learjet g5 and headed down to new orleans to see a production of wicked so peter tell us how how wicked is wicked
2: well um uh this is a very very good production and what's really nice about it is that they haven't scrimped and uh, now i'll grant you i haven't seen wicked since it opened uh on broadway i saw it twice very early in the run but i haven't seen it since So, as a result, my memory may be a little foggy on what the original looked like, but I really, truly believe that they have replicated virtually everything for this tour. So, therefore, if you are going to see this tour that's currently in New Orleans at the Sanger Theater, which is beautiful, which is especially interesting considering the fact that, of course, it was 14 feet underwater after Hurricane Katrina, Mm -hmm. wow, they really worked and they put it in great, great shape Beautiful. It always was, but now it's, it's, it <laughs> seems brand spanking new in its own way. <laughs> so, um, watching, uh, the splendors on the stage was really very, very effective. And, um, I, I, I really had to be amazed at how wonderful Eugene Lee's set, uh, settings were, are. That's funny because popular, are. Anyway, and Susan Hilferty, (laughs) who I've known since she was a teenager, um, her costumes. uh, What a job that is to do costumes for Wicked huh? I mean, making everybody look so different. uh, Everybody's wearing a different costume. You'd say, well, all musicals do that. Yeah, but I mean, this is such a fanciful land. It's not like you can rely on street clothes. um, So, but really very ornate. So, you do get your money's worth. And well, theater tickets are so expensive. The fact is, when you can see the money on stage, you don't mind nearly as much. So, <clears throat> so how's the show? Well, <clears throat> you know, it, it's it's such an interesting phenomenon when you think about it. Because when Gregory, Mag- Gregory Maguire, who wrote the novel. Um, thought of something that I don't think many of us have thought of, which is the fact that if, if you had green skin all your life, uh, you probably wouldn't be the best uh, adjusted person, and you might turn out to be a wicked witch. Now, there are different reasons why she becomes a wicked witch, but nevertheless, I think that that spurred him onto a very, very uh, fascinating concept. So, um, <clears throat> so as a result, I have to say that um, Olivia Valley <coughs> and um, Celia Huttenstein respectively playing Alphaba and Galinda or Glinda, if you will, um, <laughs> are, are really, really. Quite wonderful. It's very interesting to me that Olivia Valley gets top billing. Now, um, you may recall that they fudged the billing in the original production that I mean, Adina Menzel was to the left, but Christian Chanwith was to the right, but higher. Um, was it the reverse? I don't remember, but nevertheless, there's no question Olivia Valley gets, um, top billing here. And she's a wonderful alphabet, really, really, um, centered, uh, driven, really makes you feel that, um, you know, if you were the type of person who'd been discriminated all your life, Yes, yeah, she would take up the cause for the animals. It always has um, interested me that um, although she does try to take up the cause for the animal, that seems to be forgotten once she and Fierro hook up. He is magnificent. Wow. I would say he's really the standout of this production. Um, really a tremendous performance by an actor named Christian Thompson. Um, I think he's new to me. I may have seen him before, but... Boy, um, he really does take uh, the show by the horns and um, goes with it. So um, very dynamic performer. So I think he's really quite good. Our old friend Kathy Fitzgerald is Madame Marble, and she's quite wonderful, too. Um, She does have a feeling of being imperious, but caring. Um, She has a fine delivery when she tells Alphabet, never apologize for talent. And uh, nobody on stage uh, has to believe me. So, um, and, um, as far as Celia Hottenstein is concerned, um, she has a beautiful soprano and she uses it splendidly. So, um, I, I, I really, uh, appreciated what she had to do there. And when she gets to be First Lady of Oz, which happens in the second act, um, she really rises to the occasion. But that brings up Nessa Rose, um, who, uh, um, Tara Kostmeier, uh, plays her and there she is you know we we're led to believe that she's the good daughter she's certainly the favored daughter you know and um and yet you know uh <laughs> you know, once again she proves the power corrupts you know once she um gets to the point where she um, has power, we certainly see that she uses it the way she wants to. You know, one could really make an effective argument here, an effective argument. All right. Now, um, Bach, uh, wonderfully played by Kyle MacArthur, by the way, a very strong performance. one can really effectively argue that, of course, the reason Bach paid any attention to desa Rose in the beginning is because he thought it would get him in good with Galinda, that she would um, say, oh, you're really so wonderful to do that. I love you. And that's what he was hoping for. And that didn't happen. There is a point where he says, I can't do this anymore in the first act, I'll grant you. But he's still with her in the second act. And it seems to me, and again, I may be off base on this. I may have missed something. But... Only when she is able to walk does he feel, okay, now that you can literally stand on your own two feet, uh, you don't need me anymore. And so I would think that it would be stronger if indeed um, he uh, he would say, I can't do this anymore. And then she says, you have no heart. Um, and uh, again, it's mm-hmm. a tough thing for anybody to do. But um, uh, still, that's what I would like to have seen. You know, it's... <clears throat> Am my crowd, again, 20 years, that's a long time to remember things. But Mm. there's no cowardly lion. Was there ever a cowardly lion in the show? I thought there was. I think there's
1: a reference. Is that what there is? A passing reference.
2: Why didn't they make Dr. Dillamond a lion? You know, and if they take away his speech, you know, um, that would make him cowardly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm... that occurred to me i don't know um but it's you know it, we really since we're and they even advertise it now as you know brains heart courage you know so um and i'll grant you alpha has alpha has plenty of it but uh but um that's something that um uh occurred to me uh, look these two caveats about um the, the lion and um Alphabet forgetting her cause uh, to help the animals when she falls in love uh, may bother nobody. I mean, they certainly haven't upset the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who have uh, <laughs> instead made Wicked a worldwide phenomenon. You know I mean, that that really is. Um, so uh, when when um, we heard the song that uh, that starts with "Unlimited." Um, all I could think of was the prospects of this show. That's really she, she might as well be talking about the show because, um, <laughs> that's, that's really what has turned out to be here. So anyway, you know, while so many tours look like they're bus and U-Haul, not this <laughs> one, you know, so that's good. Um, and I really was amused by the interior of the dorm room that elphaba and Galinda share. You know, uh, the green girls' cupboard is bare, <laughs> the blonde is filled with. 10 to 12 pairs of shoes <laughs> which I thought was really quite a nice <laughs> detail so anyway uh, oh finally I really um, have um, found it interesting that um, that Elphaba's grandma is, is on target when she sings The Wizard and I while um, Belinda uh, is off the mark with uh, not as popular as me so um, I'm, I'm not sure if Stephen Schwartz was um, careful to do that or if that's just the way it played out, but uh, but that interests me as well. So it was fun to see this uh, musical, um, the first really smash-hit musical of the 21st century, wouldn't you say? I mean, is, is this the... I would think this is the longest-running one of the 21st century, because Lion King opened earlier. So um, um, I, I imagine it may, all other musicals that have opened since, Emerald Green with Envy.
0: So Peter, this was at the Sanger? Sanger? Yeah,
2: Sanger. S-A-E-N-G-R. I've always said Sanger. I frankly now that I think of it. I never heard anybody pronounce it. Um S-A-E-N-G-E-R. Yeah. Uh it looks I'm,
0: like a uh, uh, I've not been there. It look from the pictures I'm seeing, it looks like an old classic house. Do you know if it was oh, yeah. part of uh part of the circuit back in the day or
2: I don't. I don't know anything about the history of it. And um <clears throat> But, um, they certainly, uh, were influenced by, uh, beautiful theaters around the country. Or oh, they set the tone for it. I don't know. This might be the oldest theater in the country for all I know. But, <laughs> um, but it re- it really is in beautiful, beautiful shape. And, oh, funny thing the website said the show started at seven o'clock. So I was there, um, at seven. The place was virtually empty. I thought, oh my God. God, nobody's here, well, even though the website says seven it was seven thirty, and um believe me by that point, at least the orchestra, which by the way is not a small orchestra. Um, you go A to Z, and then you go all the way double letters to H, H, H. So this is a big house, and that orchestra was filled. I, I must say I didn't notice the balconies. I don't know if there's one or two. I imagine there's two. Usually roadhouses did have two. But, um, but really, they're doing business, and the audience was very appreciative. Wow,
0: that's great. They do have uh, My Fair Lady coming up uh, in January or so, and it's part of –
2: No, my my Louisiana fix is uh, – I was very disappointed. I couldn't find a streetcar named Desire to drive on Ah, uh, but uh, (laughs) that would have been nice. But uh, it didn't happen.
0: It looks like uh, this is part of the Ambassador Theater Group. So they are Ah. speaking their – yeah. They're seeping their way into the uh, hinterlands of America, and uh, getting way beyond Broadway. So, mm-hmm. and then uh, we, you know, we're almost uh, 365 days away from the Wicked movie coming. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, well, the f- first Wicked movie. Yeah, right. Coming yeah. by the know? way, someone, <laughs>
1: someone who knows about such things, uh, told me that they recently wrapped uh, it. And I mm-hmm. guess apparently filming both at the same time, or filming yeah. the whole thing, and then will be broken up into two.
0: The plan apparently is still uh, to break it up into two films. Yeah, separate mm-hmm. films. As far as uh, IMDb is concerned, it is uh, it, it's going to be two films, although they changed the name from Wicked Part One just to Wicked. Mm. So I don't know what they're going to call the second one or Wicked Maverick or something like that. Uh, So we'll see what happens.
1: Um, Peter, just to uh, clarify your grammatical
2: point, um, what are those two
1: lyrics again?
2: (laughs) Uh, The Wizard and I. Yeah. And no one's as popular as me.
1: But yeah, but it, it 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 always depends on on the where it falls in the sentence, right? Uh, no, no one's, would no, one's, no one's no one no one's as well. No one's as popular as popular me as I. As it, I, shouldn't it be I? I? I'm I'm not sure. I am. You put the word you put the word "am" after it. Oh, because so. oh, you mean because I "am" is assumed? Yeah, yeah, I see. Mm-hmm. As I am, okay, got yeah. You.
0: So, and, uh, Matt Tamanetti just talked with Stephen Schwartz about the Prince yes. of Egypt. Yes. About the Prince of Egypt, uh, a couple of weeks ago on Broadway Radio. I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, he does, uh, breach the wicked topic in there. So, uh, hopefully, uh, we'll get to see the wicked movie uh next year speaking of films michael uh-huh. did you go over to the paris or where did you see maestro i went to paris yeah <laughs> went to uh. paris to see the maestro <laughs> so this uh new film starring bradley cooper this guy you might have heard of right. he's uh such an elephant man and Who also uh, directed it and <laughs> co-wrote and, it yes <laughs> yeah and so tell us about this uh film I guess this
1: is one of those examples of um that I would say that most or all of what is in the film is really good, but it's not the film that I would have hoped that they would have made uh and it was clear early on that this film is going to focus very much on the relationship and marriage of Leonard Bernstein and Felicia monte alegre um and ah. Uh, So that wasn't a surprise, but I guess the degree to which it focused on that and uh, either ignored or gave very, very short shrift to everything else in his life, including his uh, creative output, um, that was quite a shock to me. As I've been uh, telling people, uh, it was as if no one had ever made a movie about Beethoven and then somebody suddenly made a movie about Beethoven, and they mentioned the Ninth Symphony once in passing, and then you heard about 45 seconds of it on the soundtrack as background music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, what, <laughs> and the reason I give that as an example is in this case, West Side Story is mentioned literally in passing. Oh, uh, Felicia says during a... wow a. Uh, Uh, interview with Edward Armara, I believe. Um, She says, oh, yes, Lenny's working on something called West Side Story. And then we hear uh, um, about 45 minutes a minute of the prologue as background music to a scene where um, uh, this young guy who Bernstein has begun a flirtation with uh, and his friend or partner (laughs) um, uh, arrive at the Bernstein's Uh, a state in Connecticut, their country home. Uh, and that's the music we hear is the prologue. Uh, so it seemed very, um, in opposite, uh, to me uh, at first, but then I thought, well, what can they be trying to say here? And I thought maybe they're trying to show the tension <laughs> because it's, you know, the, the tension between the sharks and the jets that we hear in the prologue. And maybe that we're supposed to think that's the tension uh, that's going to wind up happening uh, between Felicia and this young man, this very young man whom Lenny is flirting with and perhaps sleeping with. Um, but if, if that was their intention to show the, ten- the tension, I-, I don't know. It seemed a little jokey to me, and I don't think that was a good decision either. Um, so much is not uh, – let me let me tell you what is covered here musically. We do get uh, a scene of Bernstein conducting um, a chorus uh, in Make Our Garden Grow, the f- – candide finale uh, it looks like it's supposed to be a, a recording session um i suppose maybe it's supposed to be that that studio recording of candy that uh bernstein made with for with jerry hadley and june anderson at all for deutsche gramophone records uh although um i was confused by that because the chorus here is it looks like a youth chorus and i didn't think that album had a youth chorus on it so i i haven't been able to find that out yet um so that's a, a major music sequence um and then uh there's a really major one at the end where Bernst, uh bernstein well <laughs> um, bradley cooper as bernstein actually conducts um a, a fairly large chunk of a mahler symphony uh and Bradley Cooper has gone on about how he he spent basically six months in order to learn how to conduct six minutes worth of music. Um, and that is a thrilling sequence. Uh, but the other thing is, is that of course, uh, Bernstein didn't write Mahler's symphony. Um, so uh, it's not focusing on what he wrote. There is um, early on also a, a, a clip of... Um, two people playing Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Uh, and by the way, those two people are uh Nick Blaymire as as Adolph and Mallory Portnoy as Betty Comden. And they're uh, um singing at a party in the village uh and they're singing carried away from uh from on the town uh so that that was a nice thing and that was right at the beginning so i thought oh this is great we're going to get all these little snippets and and selections of of bernstein's whole oeuvre but no no that kind of stopped um and other than that other than those things i mentioned um i would say the uh, you do hear a lot of music other than that but all as background or in the credits uh at the end, I don't think there were, were any uh, was any music under credits at the beginning because the credits at the beginning are very brief. And um, they went they went through the um, incredible uh, effort and expense to recreate the lead up to uh, Bernstein's uh, initial appearance with the New York Philharmonic, where he was uh called you know he got a phone call uh, in the film we see him in bed with another guy um so right from the beginning you know we know we're not gonna they're not gonna shy away from his homosexuality or bisexuality and then he and it's the call it says bruno walter is ill you have to can can you please conduct um the concert uh at carnegie hall this afternoon with no rehearsal um, so he did, and he became front page news for that because those were the days when, um, you know, artistic events like that would, would end up on the front page as opposed to what we have on the front page now. Um, so, uh, again, I was tremendously, tremendously disappointed by all that people may say, well, that's not the movie, uh, that Bradley Cooper wanted to make the one that you want and and I and I understand that but again I guess it, I think it would be more acceptable if there was already uh you know a straight biopic about Leonard Bernstein which apparently was what Jake Gyllenhaal wanted to do um I don't know if anyone remembers there was uh a while when they were both talking about doing such a film and it looked like there might be two of them <laughs> um in the way we've seen two films of, of of other things kind of come out at the same time in the past uh but no uh Jake um apparently lost the rights at some point because the Bernstein estate and the Bernstein kids decided to go in with Bradley Cooper and I really you know uh other than that uh, other than this huge major objection it, in many ways the movie is fantastic the the I think the makeup uh uh for bernstein is is perfect i have no no objection to the prosthetic nose at all and other than aside from the nose it's just it's uncanny in most of the scenes how how completely he looks like bernstein to the point where if you didn't know it wasn't him you probably wouldn't be able to guess uh and also his performance in terms of um uh approximating bernstein's way of speaking uh. He does something that a friend of mine noticed he said, Did friend did did Leonard Bernstein always sound like he had a cold? Um there was a quality to his voice that had that. I don't know if it was partly because of the fact that he smoked literally constantly. Uh that might have had some effect on him having that odd tone to his voice. Uh but whatever, that that sound was there and it's completely replicated here. Um Harry Mulligan is really really, really wonderful as Felicia. And thank God, because she has so much screen time. They really should have called, they might as well have called it Lenny and Felicia. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's probably um, a nod to the fact that it seems to me lately uh, where maybe people feel like, well, we can't really make a biopic about a famous white guy unless we make it equally about a woman. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, maybe equally uh, about a, a, a famous person of color uh so in this case it would have been the woman i i remember how the um tv series fossey verdon was based on a book called fossey and was originally going to be titled fossey the uh the, the tv series but then um they decided they would make it fossey verdon and that was fine with me because gwen verdon is a legend in her own right and also uh arguably as famous as Bob Fossey and uh whereas Felicia Monte Alegre, although she apparently was beautiful and talented and uh and a wonderful actress, uh her career was so completely overshadowed uh by Bernstein and by the her choice to become a mother of three Uh, you know, I mean, that took a lot of time. So, um, so for all of those reasons, she was understandably very much in the background. And it is interesting to see this film about their, uh, their relationship, but I, it almost, to me, there was so much of it that it, it almost started to border on soap opera a little bit. Um, so that's another, I would say flaw of the movie. Um, Several people I've spoken with saw it and absolutely loved it. So I may be in the minority again, uh, here as I <laughs> sometimes am. Uh, but I'm sure, uh, regardless and, and despite my reservations, I would think that all of our listeners would want to catch up with it at one point, either on the big screen or, uh, the small screen <laughs> at home, uh, <laughs> it, is a, it is a Netflix. Some of those
2: falsies aren't so small anymore. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Yeah. exactly. Really. It is a Netflix <laughs> film. So oh, one other thing I, I have to mention, and this just annoyed me tremendously. Uh, a lot of the film, uh, the first part is in black and white, and then we go into color, but that didn't make any sense to me because, I mean, we, had, first of all, there was color film, in the forties when the story starts out. And also it seemed like there was only a gap of, I don't know, maybe five or 10 years at most between the black and white sections and the color sections. And yeah. I was like, what exactly is he trying to tell
0: us here? But then oh, the color, the color section is when they're in Oz.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um,
1: Oppenheimer did the same thing. And and I have to say, I have to say, my interpretation is that it's just pretentious, uh, <laughs> and and just something that you, you do to call attention to the filmmaking. And on that note, this annoyed me even more. The whole film, black and white and color, is in a is in a square aspect ratio, like the old movies <sighs> that were done before CinemaScope and and, and really? the other widescreen processes came in in 1953. And I'm like, what? possible reason is that uh is there for that now especially now that all home tvs are widescreen uh and and they didn't even switch to widescreen when it switched to color which at least that would have made some kind of a sense but no all of it is in uh i think it's i'm not sure the it's i think it's one 85.1 85.1 or maybe 133.1, uh, something in there. It's that old square aspect ratio you would see on an old TV, basically. Um, so I don't know, um, what he was doing there. And I have to say, I really loved Bradley Cooper's Stars Born. And not only did I love it, but I would say that was a much more straightforward movie than this one. This one has all these dream sequences. Oh, and that's mm. another thing that has these like mm. fantasies and dream sequences, which, all right, maybe you love them, maybe you hate them, but also they stop about halfway through the movie. And I'm like, why do they stop? Um, I, I didn't get that either um mm-hmm. on final note there are uh, a lot of fun cameos uh you'll want to keep your eye out for uh michael yuri as we may imagine. i was gonna episode. ask you
0: about michael yuri yeah
1: plays jerome robbins but he's on screen for probably about 40 seconds so wow uh, yeah yeah. Wow. So uh, another thing given very, very short shrift. Um, Ryan Steele is a dancer in the movie. And then in various other little roles, we have uh, Miriam Shore, Gideon Glick, Josh Hamilton, and our friend June Gable uh, oh. from the, from the, <laughs> Well, uh, from the uh, revival cast of Candide, and also well known as Joey's agent on Friends, um, I, I was <laughs> really, really glad to see her in it. Um, oh, and you know who else is in it in, a, in an acting role? Scott Ellis. Oh, yeah. Nice. So it's it's a lot of fun. I just uh, I was so disappointed because with the resources that they had and with bradley cooper's participation and with his amazing performance as bernstein i, I kind of maybe wish somebody other people had brought it been brought in to either direct and or uh co-write and make it more of a biopic that would have included more excerpts of uh bernstein's great over as a composer in addition to conductor and and i don't know i i, I may sound like a uh, one track mind here but i i think west side story is one of the greatest yes. masterpieces of art mm. of all forms of art ever written and <laughs> certainly in the 20th century and mm. to just not wow even mention it except for one line and a few little a few wow. seconds of music i i, I was i i Thought that was a tremendous missed opportunity. And Michael, so, Michael, what a
2: gentleman, d- you are. I'm sorry what that, What a gentleman you are! Not to mention that June Gable was in Moose Murders.
1: <laughs> I had forgotten. I did not catch Moose Murders.
0: In its how many performances? One. One. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, the um, uh, while you were mentioning this, I looked up quickly, and there's an article in IndieWire... Wire. Uh, titled Maestro is the Wizard of Oz in Reverse, and it talks about the color black and white and the 4-3 ratio as well in it. I'll put that link to that article in the show notes so that everybody can check that out. It's interesting. Bradley Cooper directly addressed both of those, those issues. Oh, I would love that, to read that, About yeah. I can't imagine what they mean by Wizard
1: of Oz in reverse. Because they <laughs> talked about the
0: color black and white.
1: Right. But and, I mean, Wizard of Us starts, yeah. <laughs> Wizard of Us starts out in black and white and then it's in color and then the end mm-hmm. is in black and white. But this is black and white and then it's color and it doesn't go yeah, back. So the same thing again.
0: But, uh, mm-hmm.
1: but that's interesting.
0: <laughs> so, uh, in, insofar as, uh, <laughs> the biopic thing goes and about mm-hmm. other Bernstein biopics, there are other, they're just, uh, you know, I, I, I- I find that... um, You mean TV, like TV? No, no. Documentary long films that just haven't been picked up by big studios and things like that that you have to dig to find. Um, Really? Yeah. So uh, Mm. I've had friends complaining about, not specifically about Bernstein, but other projects and things like that, that, uh, you know, similar to complaints about bringing shows to broadway if you don't have a big star in them you can't get them done right that uh friends say that their film projects and their television projects can't get done without a big star attached to it uh so they have the same complaints that uh that others have about the what happens on broadway so to be continued maestro the film hopefully uh everybody can uh take a, take a look and let us know what you think about this as well. We'll have a link to that in the show notes as well as the uh, article from IndieWire. So Peter and Michael both got over to New World Stages to see Mind Bangler, A Night of Tragic Illusion. Tragic illusion. That's uh that's <laughs> uh that's a confusing title for marketing purposes. So <laughs> uh Peter, what'd you think of Mind Mangler?
2: Well, um I have to say I have a very different take on magic than most people do. Um because it's most people say, How did he do that? Um when I see a show like this, I say, Oh, that type of thing can be done. Oh, okay. Hmm. That's uh, so. I was thoroughly bored um, by the show, uh, but I always am by these things. So it's just not for me. So I have nothing more to say than that. Then um, the guy tries hard; uh, he wants to be ingratiating to the audience. Um, so, <laughs>
0: so you know, uh, you're more comedy tonight than tragedy tonight.
2: Yes, I suppose that's <laughs> it. Yeah, let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> Michael, how about you, Mind Mangler?
1: Well, I'm just I'm so interested by Peter's comment, because obviously this is not a, a straight uh, forward one of these shows like you would see from somebody like Ricky Jay or one of those people. I mean, here it's all done for comedy. And we should mention right at the start, um, this is the work of the people who brought us the play that goes wrong and Peter Pan goes wrong, et cetera. Uh, it's a it's a spoof of this guy. Who gets up to do these supposedly uh, unbelievable, incredible uh, magic tricks and and, and mind uh, reading things. But he's he's a total incompetent. <laughs> and so every single thing goes wrong. Um, so, uh, I mean, so, Peter, can I assume that you just also did not find it funny?
2: Um, no, but um I thought he did a lot of tricks that um certainly didn't turn out wrong at all. There's, really? That's what was going on? Um well, I'm, t- um, <clears throat> I'm not sure. There was, I mean, I think there was one thing where somebody out of the audience yelled out um, when he asked for a word "asswipe," and um, it turned out uh, he he turned the thing around and, and said "asswipe" on it. I mean, I I, I thought that was supposed there
1: to. Be were, really there were there were a few of them that that turned out. Uh, I see he, where he didn't screw up, but the, I I just thought that the main focus on it was that he was an idiot. <laughs> And every single thing w- was going wrong. Uh, he keeps calling up a random audience member, quote unquote, right uh, sure. from the audience, and and yeah. and and that's always this obviously the same guy. <laughs> and and uh,
2: he wears a t-shirt that indicates that uh, he's right, right. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing I, I I did want to ask you is, um, uh, and by the way, we should give the name of this the central uh, artist here. His name is Henry Lewis, who you may have seen it some of those other shows that i mentioned and uh my friend with whom i attended said he's got to be aside from everything else the hardest working performer currently on stage in new york because he does not leave the stage and he talks almost constantly uh for whatever it was an hour and a half um so uh i I, if he's not the hardest working he's certainly got to be up there and kudos to him i thought he was quite amusing and very charming and very hilarious and uh his main cohort is jonathan sayer who plays those random audience members we just mentioned but um is uh,
0: it let me ask a question is is it a satire on these uh these yeah. uh yeah. these shows i mean it's well it goes wrong
1: it's well it's in the same format as that in the yeah. same way that in the same way that the murder mystery goes wrong in in that one play and, mm-hmm. the, and Peter Pan the beloved classic goes wrong mm-hmm. uh uh here uh all the, all of these fuck ups <laughs> uh keep happening while he's trying to do his his mind reading and his magic tricks uh, and i guess uh, uh, uh to peter's point i guess they um they put in a few of them that actually go right because they thought if they did every one of them as a fuck up, then that wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't sustain an evening. Uh, So it comes as a bit of a surprise when he does something and it actually works. Um, uh, Lots of audience participation. Um, I, uh, both I and my friend at at one point were, were enlisted to participate, but uh, to me it was done in a way um, that was not annoying as it can be. I mean, first of all, of course you didn't have to, uh, participate if, if he called on you, um, and it just was. It wasn't. It wasn't obnoxious to me. I, I thought it was amusing, uh, and you can certainly shrink back and you know just kind of avert your eyes if you don't want to. If you don't want to play along, um, one fascinating thing for me here uh, that that sometimes happens in these shows is um, there were several people who. I you know I, I guess they were not plants but you almost thought that they were because of because they performed well when they were required to when they were called on and I looked um only uh well three m- major people are credited in the in the playbill th- those two that we mentioned and then another assistant uh then there are two other guys uh photos in the in the cast area photos and names but they're the understudies so it wasn't them and um some of the people who were called on were women uh so there are no women's names credited anywhere in the playbill so i guess they must really be have been absolutely legit audience members random audience members um but yeah but people take a big chance when they do that don't they i mean you Mm. can call on the wrong person Mm. and end up with egg on your face right um -hmm. so uh, uh, that Mm. that's one thing that fascinates me about about these kinds of shows uh you really it's it's almost like walking a tightrope um in that sense I, I, i have
2: to say though i i really feel i've seen so many people get on stage um in under these circumstances and i think they virtually always rise to the occasion I, and I think the audience always loves uh, seeing them up there, uh, and uh, identifies to a certain degree with them. Uh, so I think some people would like to be up there, and uh, but they really for these people <laughs> who go on stage, um, some do. Yeah, no, oh yeah, I know I know plenty of people who hate audience participation to the nth degree and uh, wouldn't uh, even consider it. Um, would refuse to go up. Sure, that exists. But my point really is that when somebody gets up there, the audience is on his or her side tremendously. Um, the audience wants that person to succeed and that person usually rises to the occasion. Um, so, uh, forever plaid. Every time I saw forever plaid, when they brought somebody on stage mm-hmm. to play heart and soul, the person did very, very well. Uh, and, uh, and joined the kick line and had a wonderful time. And so did the audience. So, um, I, I, I can't. Ever recall seeing a, a true lemon um somebody who was really lousy uh get up there and um embarrass himself in the whole show. I've never seen it happen,
1: no, you're right, and as i said uh probably um the that person like if the, if they were called on, they would make it clear that they didn't want to come up and right. you know, they yeah. would just look down and and then they would move on to someone else. i guess i would my fear is that you might occasionally get someone who went to the opposite direction and and started to. Um, you know, kind of behave like a sure an sure. state.
2: I, I've uh, seen that happen too, and the audience loves that as well. Um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, okay. yeah. Uh, by the way, one time Dame Edna called somebody out of the audience, and it turned out to be um, an actress that she didn't recognize, Dodie Goodman. Oh. Uh, if, if that name means anything to anybody, yes. but um, it was it was really something that uh, you could tell she had no idea that that was uh, a performer. <laughs>
0: all right so that is uh mind bangler a night of tragic illusion at new world stages uh we'll have a link to that in the show notes
1: oh yeah at one point uh early on he uh, he mentions that uh tragic illusion was an error a typo (laughs) it's supposed to be magic illusion so that's kind (laughs) of you know that's the, the whole thing it's if you've seen uh the play that goes wrong or Peter Pan goes wrong. It, it's very much along the same lines, except it's a different genre that they're spoofing.
0: Hmm. All right. Uh, did they spoof the genre over at 54 below where you saw <laughs> Sondheim unplugged or were they true to the words? Tell no, about but, that. no, I'm trying to think. I, I think I've seen some cabaret
1: shows that were kind of spoofs of cabaret shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was not that at all. Uh, this is part of a continuing series, um, now hosted by Rob Maitner, who actually, this is the first time I had seen, uh, this is the first time I had seen him hosting Sondheim unplugged. I think I saw one many years ago when Phil Jeffrey bond was still doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rob Maitner, um, Gosh, he's so engaging and so funny. Uh, I really think he's one of the most talented of the people who do this kind of thing. Um, uh, and he, and then, and not only that, but at the very end of the program, he sang something briefly, and he displayed a beautiful voice. So that was a very, very pleasant surprise. Uh, and it just from there, it 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 just went on to be a really, really wonderful evening. John Fisher uh, is the pianist and musical director. And as it turns out, um, this show, this edition of Sondheim Unplugged, was on Sunday, November 26th, which I had not realized was the second anniversary of Sondheim's death. Mm. And actually, uh, I got to speak to Rob briefly afterwards, and he said he didn't realize it either no until kidding. somebody else well. pointed it out. Yeah, I mean, they obviously they knew it was around that time because we all remember that Sondheim died right around Thanksgiving, mm. uh, but it was the actual day, and so obviously that that informed the performance greatly. It was a wonderful program, uh, Natalie Douglas started out with There Won't Be Trumpets. Uh, Lucia Spina sang Everybody Says Don't. Ramona Mallory, uh, who we know from the Little Night Music revival, sang Anyone Can Whistle. And then she was joined by Bruce Sabbath. Uh, uh, He sang uh, Now, (laughs) also from Night Music. And Ramona did that little chattering stuff that uh and does during that number so that was a great thing um then something quite amusing happened uh natalie um started to sing send in the clowns and she went up on the lyrics uh right at the beginning She sang, um isn't it rich are we a pair? are we a pair one who keeps and then she st- and then she stopped uh and she looked around and, and she looked at the piano player and he didn't immediately come up with the line so i said me here at last and uh everybody (laughs) laughed (laughs) everybody laughed and natalie stopped and she said you know she said when we were rehearsing i told myself i need to go over the lyrics for there won't be trumpets Mm -hmm. but but i know send in the clown so i'll be fine with that she said and when you get cocky That's when Sondheim gets you. (laughs) So um, after everyone collected themselves, she uh, started the song over again, and she sang a beautiful, beautiful version of it. Um, What else? Uh, This fellow, John Michael Reese, whom I was previously unfamiliar with, did a really bravura uh, rendition of the Miller's Son and then uh, then we started to come to the, the main reason I had bought tickets for this particular uh, show. Uh, and that is that Anne Morrison and Jim Walton from the original mm-hmm. cast of Merrily We Roll Along were both on hand. Uh, Anne started it out by singing a real, real rarity. Uh, she sang The Sun Is Blue which is a song that Sondheim wrote at a very, very young age um, for uh, Mary Poppins. Uh, He had been uh, given by his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, as an exercise. Uh, Hammerstein said, well, you should write songs for different types of musicals, um, you know, with, with different... From different sources and uh you, you can adapt a classic, you can uh s- write something original, you can write something from a a film or a, a novel you know, and and so one of the ones that sonhai picked was Mary Poppins, and the song is "The Sun is blue," uh, which anyone who knows Mary Poppins in any form uh can probably figure out how that would fit in really well to a, a musical about Mary Poppins. Um, so that was Anne's first number. Um, then uh, Ramona Mallory came back and sang, Could I leave you from follies? Uh, oversold it a bit for me, but um uh, but she did it. Um, the, Bruce Sabbath did The Road You Didn't Take. Uh we were now into a follies uh section. Lucia Spina did in Buddy's Eyes and then um that John Michael Reese fellow came back and did a a, a tour de force version of Franklin Shepard Inc which is uh you know i mean pretty gutsy because it's that shows back on Broadway right now with Daniel Radcliffe doing it but he certainly did a great great job of it and made it his own and then um i guess the main event happened where Anne Morrison and Jim Walton recreated their performance of the duet version of not a day goes by from merrily we roll along which uh, was in its day a tremendous flop and a, a great great disappointment and source of sorrow and angst to everyone involved and now of course that show has become a classic and is currently one of the biggest hits on broadway in its revival so they have a lot of memories tied up with that show and with that song in particular. This is the uh, duet version that comes at, towards the end of the show where Mary finally expresses her unrequited love for Franklin Shepard, which is only alluded to uh, previously. Uh, I, I always thought that was one of the most moving and powerful moments in Merrily We Roll Along that we don't really see until almost the end uh, how much she loves this guy. Uh, So needless to say, there was not a dry eye in the house when they sang that. Um, uh, But To bring the room back up again, after that, Jim Walton did a a version of Rich and Happy, which I was glad he picked that song because it's no longer in the show, having been replaced by a song called That Frank. Uh, But Jim did not do a straightforward version of Rich and Happy. He did it in various different voices from Elmer Fudd to Bill Clinton to William (laughs) Shatner. (laughs) And... And the audience was in hysterics, and I think they really appreciated it um, after having had their hearts ripped out by Not A Take Goes By. And then the finale was uh, Rob Maynard, with his beautiful voice, led uh, a rendition of Our Time and then was joined by Jim Walton actually singing Lonnie Price's lines in <laughs> in that song. And then the entire company joined in. So that was... That was the finale, and it was a great night to be there i uh, plan to attend further uh further sondheim unplugged F- sondheim's unplugged <laughs> uh, and i hope um uh, I hope that they they if they're anywhere near as wonderful as this one it's gonna be time and money well spent
2: um may I also say that um Masterworks Broadway has just released the uh, Merrily album, and I'm going to be reviewing it next Tuesday. Not not two days from when we're speaking, but next Tuesday. But the week after that, what I'm doing is writing about the original play,
0: Merrily mm-hmm.
2: We Roll Along, which I read on the plane uh, going to New Orleans. And I am telling you, for anybody who really feels that Merrily was ever problematic, they made so many smart decisions mm-hmm. uh, so many that i really urge everybody on when december 19th i guess it'll be uh to check out that column because i am telling you ah uh, you'll have so much more respect for some time and Firth for what mm-hmm. they solved in that show uh it's just amazing to me how Kaufman and Hart didn't think of the things that they thought of
1: one specific thing now correct me if i'm wrong i because I, I read it years ago um, the iodine thing is in there, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I think that is. I think that is so interesting. I'm talking. We're talking about the scene at the very beginning of the show where it's Gussie, right? Who who throws yes. iodine yeah. in the face, in the eyes of uh, Frank's new lover, uh, and it's a, a shocking moment. Uh, needless to say, that was not. In the original script, right. of the original Marilee, right. Uh they had apparently decided that was too much, and it was replaced by a bit where um, uh, Mary uh, she gets thrown into the pool, or she throws someone else into the
2: pool. She gets I don't thrown into that. Is that right? Yeah, I don't remember that at all. Yeah,
1: Mary Flynn, um, I'm pretty uh-huh. sure, gets, gets yeah, thrown I'm into a, no, just a pool because she's so drunk at the party. Um, uh-huh. uh, but then at some point, um, they went... Uh, Firth and, and Sondheim, I guess, went back to the iodine idea. And I personally don't like it, uh, but it is it's there in the <laughs> it's original. Severe. It's, it's there severe. in the original, just like that line is there in the original of Lilium. But Mother, is it possible for someone to hit you, uh-huh. hit you hard and it not hurt at all? Yes, mm-hmm. dear. Yes, it's possible for someone to hit you, hit you really hard and it not hurt at all. So blame Baron molnar yeah. <laughs> don't, don't don't blame hammerstein or you can blame him for Yeah, I'm sure it. yeah yeah
2: uh wow
0: hey so uh that is Unplug at 54 below it's part of a series so uh the one that michael saw you can't see but it actually uh was it live-streamed? I think it was live-streamed. I think I saw it on 54 Below. That particular one was live-streamed. So, get over to 54 Below's website. I have a link to that in show notes, and you can see when the next one is and see if that's possibly live-streamed or get there to actually uh, 54 Below and check it out yourself live.
1: Yeah, this Peter. was really special because um, uh, Anne Morrison doesn't live in New York. She lives in Florida, right. so we don't see her that often. Whereas... Jim Walton lives somewhere in Hell's Kitchen, and I saw him walking his dog the other day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so next up, Peter, over to the York Theatre Company to see the Jerusalem Syndrome. So tell us about this.
2: Well, um, this is – there is such a thing as the Jerusalem Syndrome. This is not a made-up term. It's hard to believe, but um, supposedly when some people go to the Holy Land, they – They don't just take on the characteristics of biblical characters. They truly, truly 100% believe that they are these people. So you have people here in this cast who believe that they're Eve of Adam and Eve fame. Uh, John the Baptist, as I mentioned, (laughs) King David, um, Mary, Mother of Jesus, very smart thing the authors do here. They have two women think that they're Mary the Mother of Jesus, so they can fight over Jesus quite a bit uh and um God, a woman thinks she's God, and that's all there is so um, I have to say that um I can understand why somebody read this um in a newspaper that this happens and saying, Wow, what a great idea for a musical." But I have to say that I got very tired of watching these people continually insist that they were these characters. Um, There was just no leeway in any of the characters Uh, until the very end of the show, like around five minutes to go, did they all straighten out, if you want to use that term. I mean, you might feel it's really wonderful that these people think that they're Um, yeah, I can understand going to the Holy Land and coming back more religious than when you went there, but I really can't, um, understand how people feel this way. But uh, really, I mean, they didn't invent this. This wasn't, um, this is really something that truly exists. And if you Google it, you'll find out that it does exist. So, but wow, you know, I mean, I, 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 I just, I lost patience with them. Um, when they, I, I guess, what it really has to do with, I have I have a lot of trouble with people who insist they're right uh, all the time, and um, and the and that's what these people are. They're always insisting they're right, no matter what people put in front of them and say. Look, you're, you're in uh, modern surroundings. No matter what, it doesn't matter. They always insist they're right, and I I found that terribly um um <laughs> wearing. Yeah, the, the, these. The writers have have had a terrible break too i have to say i mean um i first saw this in 2007 when they did it i believe at 37 um the one that's uh now the Barishnikov place uh, on 37th street mm. um it was called 37 something wasn't it Is anybody remember don't know no, no i okay. don't remember anyway um i saw it there in 2007 And you know, one of the big things that happens is there's a couple that's having a lot of trouble because he's always on his cell phone. And this was two years before God of Carnage. And you know, so it's really so sad it takes musicals so long to get on, because indeed, time passes them by and other things come up and the cell phone thing that a guy just will not get off his cell phone. Uh which seemed to be something we didn't hear that much about in two thousand and seven we've heard about endlessly now i mean it, it, this show took so long to get on that it's sad to say one of its collaborators died um not that long ago, but not not um not enough um to stay with us uh, to see this production, which is really such a shame um lovely people i i I certainly uh, met them way back when Lawrence Holtzman and Felicia Needleman um, they wrote the book and the lyrics, and Kyle Rosen wrote the music and there's nothing wrong with um the songs per se it's i I think it should be maybe a ten minute musical so um i I wish I could be more enthusiastic oh. I can be more enthusiastic because the cast is terrific, terrific beyond belief. Farrah Albin is the one who's uh, the wife of the guy who's always on the cell phone. He's Jer- Jeffrey Schechter. He's really quite, quite good. Um, <laughs> So, uh, the tour guide, um, is nicely played by Chandler Sinks. Um, so, uh, John Jellison, who we've seen a million things, Karen Murphy, we've seen a million things, uh, Lenny Wolpe, we've seen in two million things. They're all quite wonderful, quite <laughs> wonderful indeed. Jeff- Jennifer Smith, uh, one of the women who thinks that she's, uh, Mary, mother of Jesus. uh, hilarious Uh, really they're all they couldn't have a better cast um so that is really something and i think the choreography is quite nifty as well so um but um yeah i think it's time to do musical
0: okay so uh next up and last for the morning is uh you got a chance, Peter got a chance to listen to the original cast recording of Walking with Bubbles, which, uh, Peter, you reviewed uh, some months back. So uh, the actual production itself. So tell us about this.
2: Well, this is Jessica Hendy's story about um, her, her husband, who was a very difficult man. And um, I have to say that while she was going through this, I knew people who knew uh, both um, Jessica and her husband. And certainly, um, so I came to this story with a lot of, uh, backstory. So, um, so it is, it's about difficulties of having a husband who is just horrific and certainly comes to a, a terribly, uh, bad end. Um, Bubbles is, uh, her nickname for her kid Beckett. Um, it's spelled with two T's by the way, not like, uh, Samuel, but, um, anyway, um, her uh, dealing with a child and dealing with a husband like this um, can really be a very very uh difficult situation, but anyway, um the music is really quite wonderful, and um, there's a song called "The Man I Used to Know," which really um will um, move you tremendously so this is a very entertaining album uh the craft in the in, in the music and lyrics is quite fine so i um I really do believe that it is worth hearing and um, I'm very glad that it got an album Uh, you know this is the type of thing that usually doesn't get an album but um, a one person show but um, but it does extraordinarily well uh, on disc so make it uh, something that you uh, look into
0: all right so we'll have a link to the uh, walking with bubbles website where you can get the original cast recording uh, from there So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our brain teaser and our musical moments, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Broadway Radio. Is somewhere where you can uh, subscribe and get all of our episodes early, including this weekend's Jan Simpsons knew all the drama there, uh, where she talks about the 1987 Pulitzer Prize winner, Fences by August Wilson. Uh, and that is available to our Patreon listeners, uh, a week early, and it'll be available to the general public next weekend. So if you want to support us, that's patreon.com slash broader video and get our stuff early. Other ways to listen to us, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Pandora, Google Play, YouTube Music, anywhere that you can listen to, find a podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at Broadway Radio, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So Peter, do we have an answer to last week's Brain Teaser?
2: He had the 11 o'clock number, a solo, in a Tony-winning musical. Some years later, he appeared in a film version of a different Tony-winning musical, but in this movie he didn't sing a note. He later appeared many, many times in the leading role of yet another Tony-winning musical, not on Broadway, no, but on many a national tour. Who is he? He's Theodore Bacchel, who sang Edelweiss in the Tony-winning Sound of Music, five years before appearing as Dalton's Kapathi, a non-singing role in the film version of My Fair Lady. And some years after that, he toured the country many, many times as Tevye in the Tony-winning Fiddler on the Roof. So, Tony Janicki returned to first place, followed by Paul Witte, Josh Israel, J. Aubrey Jones, Mike Meaney, Sean Logan, Arthur Robinson, and Dude This week's question... She sang the title song in a musical that opened on her birthday. Later, she performed this title song on The Ed Sullivan Show. As for the show itself, it wasn't very good, which may be why Columbia, RCA Victor, and Capital, the big three record companies that routinely did cast albums at the time, let another company have it. Who's the singer? What's the musical that opened on her birthday? And what record label did the cast album?
0: Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment?
1: Well, since there wasn't nearly as much of West Side Story in Maestro (laughs) (laughs) as I would have liked, uh, I picked two selections from that score, but this is the Amazing, phenomenal, life-changing recording of the symphonic dances from West Side Story, uh, as it's called, conduct- conducted by Leonard Bernstein, um, leading the New York Philharmonic. Uh, I believe this recording was made in 1960, uh, if not exactly, then sometime around there. And um, it's notable because it is Bernstein himself conducting Uh, a large amount of the score uh, included in this suite. Um, He did make that later recording, a studio recording with Kira Takanoa and Jose Carreras and Tatiana Troianos. But um, first of all, many people object to the casting of that Mm. recording. And also I think um, in his later years, Bernstein started to get um, a little pretentious in his conducting uh, in terms of really slow tempos, et cetera. But in 1960, um, he was on fire and the, the sound quality of this recording is one of the best I've ever heard in my life. So um, if you are a West Side Story fan and have never heard uh, Leonard Bernstein's 1960 recording of symphonic dances from West Side Story on the Columbia label, um, be my guest uh, and uh, we have chosen two selections from it the opener
0: uh, is the Mambo and our closer is the Rumble all right so on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway radios this week on Broadway Bye-bye. bye bye bye